Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Sudden cardiac arrest victims feel fine one minute, and they're dead the next. Cardiac defibrillators make it possible to change that outcome. These devices are effective, fairly simple to operate, And now, they're readily available in many public places. With so many people overdosing in public places today, why not do the same thing with naloxone, the life-saving opioid overdose reversal drug? Our guest today has done just that. Dr. Jeffrey Caprero is an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Brown University. So, doctor, welcome. Thanks for having me. Let's start off with the backdrop in Rhode Island. Tell us a little bit about what you've experienced with the opioid epidemic there in your state. Yeah, sure. Um, Rhode Island's not too different from other states, uh, suffering an unrelenting opioid overdose epidemic. Um, We have a very high rate of opioid overdose uh, deaths in our state, and uh, that's not despite a lot of um, really vigorous effort to try to uh, impact the epidemic. Um, you know, we have, uh, we're trying to, uh, we have systems in place where um, physicians are, uh, efforts to change the prescribing practices of physicians, um, dispensing naloxone from the emergency department. Um, we have uh, a huge amount of community outreach and naloxone distribution to high-risk individuals. Um, pharmacies can dispense uh, naloxone. Um, and still, we're not really making the impact we want, the, uh, the death rate. Um, is still very high. Uh, Rhode Island, even though it's very small, has a very high opiate overdose death rate. And um, so we're, uh, it's, it, it, there, the unfortunate thing is that many of these deaths would be preventable if a person could be administered naloxone. It's one of our most potent antidotes. So why is this issue personally important to you? Um, I mean, I, I've been practicing emergency medicine now for some time, uh, for 14 years, and um, we, we, we want to intervene uh, vigorously to resuscitate people. Um, the, uh, there are not too many antidotes that are as effective as naloxone. It is a remarkable medication if given in a timely fashion. Um, and so uh, we also know from emergency medicine practice that um, sometimes uh, some of the most critical interventions are made before a person arrives in the hospital. Um, unfortunately, some people who come in in extreme, uh, in extreme situations, um, if interventions weren't made pre-hospital, then there's little we can do um, once they arrive even in the emergency department with all of our, the resources we have at hand. Um, so those are some of the reasons um, why this matters. Um, I think also 
you know, our practice of medicine um, is one aspect of our careers, but um, we like to think about how we can engage communities um, and uh, think about interventions that we can make in partnership with the, with the communities that we serve. So how did you come up with this idea of, in essence, putting the locks box uh, out in public places, just like you would a defibrillator? Other people have had uh, similar ideas and efforts to um, deploy. Um, I think that the, the concern is that the American Heart Association, uh, even for its basic life support algorithms, uh, recommends that people give, a bystander rescuers give naloxone to a person who's not breathing properly, who's suspected of having an overdose. Um, but, but naloxone is not publicly available, and so the bystander rescuer is left waiting six or eight or however many minutes for an ambulance to arrive with the naloxone. Um, and those are critical minutes. Um, the person may um, be dead or they may have suffered uh, brain damage as a result of um, the overdose. And so we don't want a bystander rescuer who suspects an overdose to not have the proper, um, proper uh, medicine and a mask to give rescue breaths. And so that's, those are the simple things that the Nalox box provides, is multiple doses of naloxone and a mask for rescue breaths. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we're hoping that now we can build some capacity for the public, for uh, bystanders to help their neighbor. So can you describe the, the locks box? It's uh, rather simple. You know, I, so, you know, I had this idea. Um, I, I had a failed application with the FDA um, uh, pediatric device uh, consortium uh, where I was trying to do too much, probably. Uh, I had an AED locator, epinephrine for anaphylaxis and naloxone. Um, for overdose, and the thinking, you know, in the same sort of thinking, what what does a bystander rescuer need? Um, the Knox box said, um, I was very lucky to engage partnership of um, professors at Rhode Island School of Design in industrial design because I don't have uh, any skills or talent in that domain. Um, and so my first uh, partner there that I engaged in the fall 2016 with Sujong Ham uh, uh, was working on a design with her students uh, to be elegant and pretty and uh, user friendly. Um, and then she uh, went on a sabbatical, and my new partner, Claudia Rabola, took over, thankfully. Um, and she was, uh, I, I think she acted with the urgency and real practical-minded solutions um, that we need to make these as fast as we can, um, and we need to make them cheap and, uh, and attractive. And I think she accomplished those things in our first uh, prototype. So the Nox box um, is simply is a plastic white cabinet, um, about the size of maybe a 10 by 12 inch. I don't even actually know the <laughs> dimensions. Um, and it has a clear plexiglass, plexiglass front. Um, shortly we'll be uploading some images to our website, uh, naloxbox.org. Um, and you can see it in some of the press. We had, a, thankfully, had an Associated Press story. Um, it's a clear plastic. It has a red cross on the, on the clear plastic front. Um, and uh, currently we even had a cloth uh, hinge assembly. So the plexiglass is mounted on a wall. The plexiglass door opens um, towards the floor, and inside there are simple uh, elastic straps holding multiple doses of naloxone and a red uh, red plastic box for the mask. Wow. So how many doses does it hold? You know, we're early in, in the launch, and so we're currently stocking um, the units with four doses of naloxone. Uh, the design, you know, provides the flexibility that that could be intramuscular dose, it could be intranasal dose, and it could be intranasal brand name dose. Um, so because we just have elastic straps holding the medicine in, um, it has, the unit has the flexibility to um, be stocked however the end user, the partner in the effort um, likes to stock it. So, and does it also have a component for instruction for the user? 
Yeah, so the instructions are, um, you know, per manufacturer. Um, so we have a, a program called the Pony Program. It's one of our um, critical partners in this effort, and they do community naloxone distribution. They also do uh, training sessions um, in overdose recognition and response. Um, and so currently we're using, uh, they're uh, kindly supported our effort in providing the naloxone um, for the units. And so um, there are instructions that come in there. Um, we also have a very simple label inside the boxes that um, tells people to use this box for a suspected overdose and call 911. Uh, secondly, if you want your own naloxone, we give them a site uh, to visit where they can uh, find uh, where to find naloxone of their own. Um, it also has a uh, 800 number for seeking addiction uh, treatment. Okay. So we, we tried to put some very simple instructions in the box uh, to make them useful in the moment and also um, for follow-up care. So the box is sitting up on the wall. Somebody starts overdosing, and a passerby goes by, notices the box. How do they get into the box and gain access? Uh, our box is open open access. We have a Velcro um, tab. Um, and uh, so the places where we've put it um, are uh, presently our first launch is in high-risk facilities. Um, we know that the epidemic affects people of all ages and races and uh, economic levels. Um, but currently, our first partners are uh, mostly um, drug recovery um, uh, residences, uh, homeless shelters, people with a, a particularly high-risk populations. And so um, these are public-facing, semi-public buildings. Um, they're in the foyers of, uh, foyers of such places. Um, and, uh, yeah, so the, the units will be available to anybody. And what we found so far is that our partners... Uh, even though they um, take care of high-risk populations, the partners that we've engaged are also seeking training for their staff um, this, you know, in overdose recognition and response. Ah, okay. So it goes hand-in-hand. Hand. You put it in a building, and you train the employees in that building that are going to be the most likely passers-by that would use this. Yeah. In fact, even uh, in some of the residences that we're um, scheduling installations with this month, um, they are actually inviting uh, residents, uh, re- the clients, to uh, participate in the trainings too. Sure. So how long did it take you to, uh, you know, from beginning to where you are right now in the launch? And uh, also, where are you, doctor, in the launch, if you could yeah, describe so, that? So we were uh, very lucky this spring. Um, we responded to uh, Rhode Island Department of Health uh, mini-grant um, uh, proposal. Um, and uh, the we were lucky to secure that first um, small grant to build 48 of the units, and we um, are now just uh, doing the installations that came along with them. So uh, we are now up to 14 or 15 uh, community partners who said they would like to install them in their facilities. And uh, at the facilities, some of them have multiple buildings in their facilities. Um, and so at these facilities, uh, the partners have sought either, you know, from one to seven uh, NOx box units um, in these facilities. Uh, so we're, uh, we've finished construction of 48. Um, today I just submitted a second grant application to build an additional 36 um, through Rhode Island Department of Health also. Um, the, the time frame on the grant was very short. So the, the, whole, the whole time frame, they, they turned around the application quickly, and they also gave us three months to execute the... Um, so we did, during the three-month period, we've um, designed, uh, constructed, and engaged these partners. So... Uh, things went pretty quickly, and that's kind of what we're hoping for. Wow, that's tremendous. Can you estimate what the cost would be to another community for one of these boxes? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, 
the we're we're able to use um, we we came up with that simple design. Um, we I didn't mention that there's some smart technologies built into the box that we're just working out uh, right now. Um, if we're um, if the box is equipped with the smart technologies as we currently have them configured, uh, the cost per unit is under $100. Um, if you go with just a more analog box, um, the cost is less than $50, not including the naloxone doses to go inside. Um, and so we're I think we're you know we've done, come up with a pretty economical solution. Um, and uh, you know the hope was that you know we can easily replicate this and refine um, the design when we get uh, end user feedback, um, and you know c keep the price very low, um, so it is easy to uh, disseminate. So one thing that came out in uh, the little blurb that I read on your program there was another community that is um, uh, designing a box in temper temperature controlled environment. Are there any concerns in terms of your program for climate control? Yeah, I think that's a, a great consideration. Uh, um, you know, the places where we're installing are, are largely indoors and they are temperature controlled. So these are mostly like lobbies, foyers, you know, anterooms inside of facilities. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, uh, the some public-facing units which are temperature controlled, I think um, that's, that might be an additional need that will be, you know, served by those um, those folks, I think that um, right now we, we, in a way, kind of stumbled upon these community partners who were serving high-risk clients who, you know, had some ability to respond, but um, they clearly felt a need for additional resources and training. Um, and so, you know, if you look at um, where overdoses occur, uh, the truth is most of the majority of them are in private places where public access naloxone is not going to impact them, and I probably, you know, um, but... You know, so I think that if you think about most of the overdoses are going to be in private settings, a minority will be in public settings or semi-public settings. And then if you say amongst those semi-public areas, how many are going to happen in a, a truly outdoor, you know, outdoor setting? I don't, I don't think we had to build in the climate control for our launch at least, um, but um, certainly an admirable thing to be thinking about building capacity in places where the environment might uh, play a role. Sure. Increasingly, we hear reports of people uh, overdosing in parking lots. So in that particular case, uh, your model would still work if it's a parking lot of a McDonald's, and say, for example, and you have it indoors in that actual McDonald's. I would hope so. I mean, I think that, you know, with the second grant that we're submitting, um, we're working with a, a new partner in Rhode Island who um, has links to municipal buildings and, uh, and municipal facilities. And so we're hoping that now to put these uh, units not just in high-risk facilities, but places where there are a lot of eyeballs. You know, a lot of people pass by, um, you know, high foot traffic. And so if we can build public awareness of what they are and put them in places where people will see them and they know how to retrieve them, um, then uh, the hope is, yeah, that that would help for the parking lot situation. The person, you know, was at the mall and they saw, they knew that there was a box inside the mall and they could send somebody to the lobby to recover it the units in there. So um, I think that that's a, you know, hopefully over time we build some capacity to respond to the parking lot scenario. Um, but, um, you know, it's a, it's a big effort to raise enough awareness. Um, you know, we, we don't have a system integrated with EMS or ambulance response, but um, we did in our first launch uh, work with the Department of Health to map the locations of the NALOX boxes. So uh, part of Prevent Overdose Rhode Island's website 
Um, they have drop-down menus where people can find naloxone for their own personal use, and that includes, you know, some pharmacies. Uh, but now we have a drop-down for Naloxbox. And maybe in the future we can uh, work on a collaboration with EMS so that if an EMS dispatcher receives a call about a suspected overdose, um, they can have the map up on their computer and say, gee, until the ambulance gets there, why don't you send another bystander to retrieve the naloxone that is behind you in the foyer of the building? So, you know, there might be some ability for integration with EMS systems um, where, um, you know, where if the public wasn't aware um, that the unit was there or what it was used for, now EMS dispatch has the information before naloxone can arrive by ambulance. So you kind of answered this question um, a little bit earlier, but I want to come back to it about how you go about determining the uh, best place to put the Nalox box. I'd like to revisit that uh, just a little bit and have you kind of discuss your thoughts behind that and share it for perhaps other communities that are thinking about doing a similar thing. There's a lot of knowledge, um, and people dedicated to doing this work, there's a lot of knowledge out there about um, where they think the need is. I think that... uh, a huge thing um, that happened with us uh, is I reached out to um, a coordinator for a Rhode Island Coalition for the Homeless, uh, Daryl Kosiak, and he um, kindly passed a, an appeal on our behalf uh, to Rhode Island Coalition members um, saying, hey, you know, um, there's a uh, naloxone that could give, uh, you know, multiple doses of naloxone and a mask. If some of your clients might suffer an overdose, you know, would you be interested? And the majority of our uh, contacts so far, our partners, came through that appeal to the coalition. Um, And so that was a really um, uh, almost unexpected uh, link up in identifying the need. Um, I've been sitting with the Naloxone Work Group. We had a governor's task force and a Naloxone Work Group at our state. Um, And, you know, there are a lot of people doing, you know, street outreach um, and, you know, finding individuals, again, who might be in need of Naloxone. but I think that this is, a, this is a real helpful thing to know that facilities where you might predict they might have some um, clients who are suffering from addiction and at risk for overdose, um, that there was a sort of untapped need there that, you know, some of them had makeshift approaches. They had, somebody had naloxone upstairs in their desk, um, you know, but, you know, they didn't have the rescue masks. All the staff didn't know it was there. If that person's not working, did they know it was in, the, in their person's desk? So, um I think that, you know, one strategy is reaching out to people who uh, serve at-risk um, populations in your, in your state or city. Um, another thing is, you know, if we look at the epidemiology of the, of the um, epidemic, um, you'd hope that there might be some ways to map uh, areas of high risk. But that, um, that's still a little, little bit difficult, uh, as frequent as the overdoses are. Um, it might be hard to identify, you know, clear clusters or geographic um, areas where uh, the interventions need to be made. But there's certainly, um, you know, there certainly is some inside information there from departments of health and people dedicated to um, studying the epidemic where there might be some ways to be strategic about the installation. All right. And when was your first box placed in a public place? Uh, just June 9th. So the, the, uh, we installed at a facility called uh, Amos House in Providence on June 9th. Um, that was my very first partner, Eileen Hayes there. Um, she, uh, so we're just getting off the ground. Um, she was uh, a wonderful partner to have. Um, you know, she, they, this facility, um, they have um, 
recovery houses. They have a um, soup kitchen. Um, they also do a job training program for people who are uh, recovering from addiction. Um, and they have facilities for mother-child reunification or parent-child, actually, I should say. Um, so they have, you know, people who are in recovery who have been sick. Their children, maybe their children were taken away, and now they've been reunited. And she related, you know, she has too many stories, more stories than she'd probably like, both successes and, and terrible tragedies. Um, but she recounted one story of a client um, who had suffered an overdose and was not breathing. She was blue. Um, she personally administered, this is a, a woman who runs Amos House, uh, personally administered naloxone and rescued the woman. And now she's clean and she's a full-time employee of her facility. Um, so, you know, there's, um, so they were, Amos House is a very enthusiastic first partner. Even though they had some knowledge and skills, um, their staff um, did not all have experience in uh, overdose recognition or naloxone administration. Um, and only, you know, um, a small portion of them had ever uh, given naloxone. So, um, you know, they were they were receptive to the training as well. I, I wasn't sure that all sites would uh, want to have the training, um, but um, Amos House uh, was enthusiastic for the training as well. So, Doctor, what final thoughts would you like to share with our listeners about what you've learned and about your program? Yeah, thanks. I guess that, you know, I think that teaming up with like-minded partners um, in your city or state is a critical first step if you want to um, provide this capacity for bystanders to rescue their neighbor or a loved one. I think acting with urgency is important. Um, I don't think we can wait on this epidemic. Um, you know, it takes a multi-pronged approach, and our approach is just one small sliver of, of the approach. But, um, you know, I think that uh, we, we'd like to, you know, we're, we're probably not going to measure the impact of an intervention like ours and statistical significance, statistical effect. Um, I think we're looking for single rescues. I think if we, you know, put naloxone and a rescue mask uh, in the hands of one bystander rescuer, you know, even in the next year in Rhode Island and whatever states might like to partner with us, uh, then uh, that was worth the effort. You know, the, these are tragic, um, tragic deaths that uh, families and friends are suffering. And um, we know that if we can intervene in a timely fashion, they're preventable. Well, thank you, Doctor. I appreciate your taking the time to share your story. Oh, you're quite welcome. Thank you for your interest. We've been joined today by Dr. Jeffrey Capraro, an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Brown University. The doctor and his, his team have come up with an interesting and innovative approach to address overdoses in public places. Their innovation is known as the Loxbox. Like defibrillators, the lockboxes containing the life-saving overdose reversal drug, naloxone, are being located in public places with 12 partners in Rhode Island who serve the most at-risk populations, including the homeless, those struggling with addiction, and those recently released from prison. Training in opiate overdose recognition and rescue is being conducted this summer, along with installation of the initial 48 naloxboxes for the program. My name is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. 
If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.